Good evening, Doxology. My name is Leo. I'm a member here, for those of you who don't know me, and I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from Psalm chapter 139. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have these blue Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, these are our gift to you. The, um, the chapter tonight can be found on pages 300 and 301 in these blue Bibles. Again, the chapter is uh, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's Word. Thank you, Leo. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. For those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, uh, regardless of what your spiritual background is, maybe you've been going to church for a long time, maybe you're just checking things out, a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name's Steve, lead pastor here. And we're finishing up our series in the Psalms, so today and next week will be our final Sundays in the Psalms, and then we'll move into Hebrews for the fall. So really looking forward to moving through that together with you guys. So, uh, Psalm 139. It's one of the Psalter's greatest hits, you could say. There's some wonderful lines in the psalm. So, you know, verse 9, you know, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. They make for great, you know, coffee cup verses or something to put in calligraphy on your wall and take an Instagram photo of. But there's that pesky section in, uh, at the end that we don't know what to do with. I mean, is it, even as you were hurting, even as you were hearing it read, you were probably thinking, you know, what? Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Like, that doesn't make for a good coffee cup verse, does it? And I remember Tim Keller, famous pastor, now retired, saying how uh, for the first 10 years of his ministry, when he would preach on Psalm 139, he would get to verse 18 and then stop. And he would only preach verses 1 through 18 because he just, he didn't know what to do with verses 19 until the end. And so uh, here's what we're going to do. Um, 
we're actually going to take next week, we're going to end the psalm series with an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is where a psalmist actually prays for evil to come down on other people. And I want to go through that with you guys because there's a number of psalms or sections of psalms in the scripture that use violent language like that. And I think a lot of believers don't really know what to do with it. And so I want us as a church to be well equipped and to know, you know, how do we make sense of these places in scripture? Uh, So you can look forward to that next week. Uh, But for today, here's what we need to know as far as this section, verse 19 and 22 goes. David's in distress. So he has people who are physically out to kill him or at best do him physical harm. That's a stressful situation. And so what's noteworthy is, and this is, it actually makes sense of the entire psalm, because David's in distress, like he's being hunted. He's, he's, a, he's a prey. He's being hunted, and so what's his solution? And his solution is he knows he needs to fill himself with awe. Like that's his solution. And we need to know that because this psalm, among you know, many other places in Scripture, just because as humans we're naturally self-centered, we tend to read psalms like this through a very me-centered lens, right? So we start with verse 1. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. Verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's not wrong, but, well, it is wrong because the, the emphasis is on the wrong pronoun. Like, it does matter how it impacts us, but really the emphasis should be on God's pronoun. So, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. Verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And when you read the psalm that way, that changes everything. And so what I hope for us tonight is that as we go through the psalm, we get a little greater appreciation for the all that God fills us with. Because, you know, even, you know, modern scientists will say this now, when you are in the presence of something transcendent, Right, so this has happened to me a couple times at a few music shows in particular. Uh, one time when I was in Switzerland, there was just a beautiful moment I can't put words toward. Uh, when I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, <laughs> you know, when you put, or the third, when you, when you put yourself in the presence of something transcendent, right, you become self-forgetful, and you become less anxious, you become more calm, you actually become more other-centered and le- less self-centered. And so, as we walk through this psalm, just think about a situation that you're in. Maybe you're anxious about. It could be a situation. It could be a decision you're making. Uh, it could even just be something that you're discontent about. And take your eyes off of that and place it on God, and let's see what happens as we gain a greater appreciation for the majesty of God, okay? And so, here's what we'll see. The psalm has a natural flow to it. So, if, uh, in the first stanza, we'll look at God's knowledge. and the next stanza, we'll look at God's presence. The third stanza, we'll look at, we'll look at God's attentive creation, call it that. And then finally, we'll see how do we respond in light of all this. So God's knowledge, God's presence, God's attentiveness to his creation. And then how do we respond to all this? Okay, so first, the first stanza, verses one through six. So here the emphasis is clearly on God's knowledge. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You discern my thoughts. Verse three, you search out, you're acquainted with. Okay, on and on it goes. The first stanza is all about God's knowledge. So God knows everything all the way down to their essence. Like everything. So all laws of physics, chemistry, biology, space, time. He knows if there's multiple universes or not. And how they function together if they do. He knows all people, relationships, feelings, mysteries, secrets. He knows it all. And not just because he has learned it. Okay, if God is learning things about relationships and facts 
and things that would imply a movement of a knowledge boundary, right? God can't change. So he, he knows everything because he's the origin of everything. And so David's standing here thinking, you know, verse 6, it just puts him in a sense of awe. You know, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Because, so think about for you, you know, how often do you fret because you don't know something? You know, I mean, imagine if you knew your field so well, like how much more successful would you be? Like if you knew your subject matter as if you'd been doing it for 200 years, you knew all the key players in it. Uh, What about like really hard or delicate conversations where what you say or how you say it, I mean, that can impact the trajectory for a lifetime. And the point here is our knowledge is meant to be bounded. Okay, if God gave us the infinite knowledge that he has, we wouldn't just use it for other people. We'd use it to increase our own sense of self-reliance and selfish purposes. So he's created us with knowledge boundaries so that we depend on him. But more than that, it's not just that God knows everything. See the language here? What David's highlighting here in particular is God's personal relational knowledge. See, you've known me. You know when I sit down, you discern my thoughts. And so it's not just that God knows facts in general, but he knows David, and he knows you and me in particular. And this should give you profound comfort. I mean, where where to begin? But uh, first of all, if, you know, say something has ever happened to you and you wonder if, anyone knows or cares? God knows. And he will ensure that it's made absolutely right and whole. And then as you think about your day-to-day life, this is so important because what this means is no one knows you like God does. And I know you hear that all the time. If, you, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you hear that, okay, yeah, I know God knows me. But see where he says here, verse 5, you hem me in behind him before. That language has probably less to do with you know, God hugging you, and it has more to do with time. So God has known you before you existed, after you exist, and everywhere in between. So God knows you when you were a kid, how you are today, and how you're going to be as an old person or an older person at the same time. Like, he doesn't know you in different slices in time, but he knows all of you together. Um, it's a little bit like this. So in the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, there's this section where Arwen, she's looking at her lover Aragorn, and he's just passed away. And whether you've read the books or not, you can appreciate this. So he passes away, and how Tolkien describes it is, There was a great beauty revealed in him so that all who came thereafter looked on him with wonder. Here's the line. For they saw the grace of his youth, the valor of his manhood, and the wisdom and majesty of age were all blended together. The grace of his youth, the valor of his manhood, and the wisdom and majesty of his age all blended together. And that's how God sees you. And so... (laughs) In light of this, you know, no one knowing you better than God, especially in an age where, you know, it seems like almost everybody is trying to, you know, discover who I really am, like who's the real me. One of the the errors in that is you can't do it. I mean, even if God didn't exist, you can't do it in a vacuum because you can only know who you are in relationship to other people in community. 
but most relevant to where we are now is you can only really know yourself insofar as you know yourself in relationship to God. And this is why it's so important that you spent, you know, the purpose of this series, why it's good to meet, be near God personally, because you can really o- only know who the real you is the more you're actually spending time with the Lord one-on-one and knowing him in the context of community. And that's where you find out who you really are. Okay, so first God's knowledge should make you wonder and then like, oh my gosh, he, he really knows you. He's the only one who actually knows you. Okay, so we keep going. Next we look at God's presence. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. So David's painting a picture here. If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. Okay, if I ascend to, if I de- descend to Sheol, that's the land of the dead. So way down there. So up and down. And then if I take the wings of the morning, so that where does the sun rise? Where does the sun rise? East, good job. All right, yeah, good job, guys. East. And then even if I dwell in the uttermost parts, parts of the sea, so David's writing in Israel, Mediterranean Sea was to his west, right? So up, down, east, and west. So he's saying, God, you're everywhere. And it's not just that, it's not that God's like a gas where he spreads himself out and he's, he's thinned, you know, as he spreads himself out, but he's absolutely fully present. Not just in all time, so, which is, this will make your head spin. He's, because he's outside of time, he's present with Abraham and Sarah and the Hannah from 1 Samuel and the Apostle Paul and you and me today at the same time and fully in each place. And he's saying, it, and, and what he's getting at here is, it's not just that I can't find a place where God's not. It's this is incredibly comforting to David because no matter where I go, you're with me fully. It's hard to overestimate the, the power of presence in your life. And, you know, one of the times I felt this the most is, this was about 10, yeah, this was 10 years ago, almost to the day, and Kelsey and I were engaged. And I had an unexplainable illness, a fever over 104 degrees. I, I, my body felt like lead. I couldn't move my neck, and so I got rushed to the ER. And I got to the ER, and they triaged me ahead of everybody else, you know, that was sitting in the lobby, which was as convenient as was frightening because they know if they triage you ahead of everybody else, you know, then you're in serious condition. Uh, they thought I may have had meningitis. So they, you know, they get me in through all the initial check and super fast. Before I know it, I'm laying on the table on my side and they're getting ready to do a spinal tap where I didn't even know that anything was allowed to go in your spine, but apparently a huge needle can go in your spine. So I'm, and I hate needles, but I'm on my back and it's not just that I'm afraid of the pain of the needle going in, but, you know, I'm wondering, like, am I even going to have my full faculties a year from now? Am I going to be alive a year from now? And Kelsey was with me. And she didn't say anything. I mean, what, what can you say? But all she did was she was sitting there by the, the bed, and she just grabbed my hand. And 
that simple act of holding my hand was more precious than gold. And what David's saying here is, see verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So even, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. So even if I'm in the darkest place, whether it's a nightmare has become manifest, whether it's a horrible situation, whether it's my own sin, whether it's just, you know, something awful, even there your hand shall hold me and your right hand shall hold me fast. And so what God's telling you in this psalm is that he's not just some wispy God who did some things for you in the past and maybe he'll do some things into the future, but he's absolutely present with you now. And so you do not need to be afraid of anything in this life or the next because he's with you shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand. What a gift. So you get God's presence. Next we move into verses 13 to 16. David's still in awe and he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them in the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So here he's primarily in wonder at how incredible God is at creating. So you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I can't even keep a plant alive that my mother-in-law gives me. And, you know, David's saying here, you're, you knit me together. You knit together every single human being. You're intimately involved with it. And, you know, for even with the marvels of modern medicine, you know, a doctor in a lab can put together a sperm and an egg and make a human form But even once that process starts, there's nothing that we can do to actually empower that process to make the miracle that is human life happen. It's amazing. And David's saying, you do this for everybody. In every time and place. And then he continues on saying, your eyes saw my unformed substance. So that word for that phrase, unformed substance, literally translates embryo. So you're with me and every single human being from embryo stage to death. And you've ordained every single day in their book before they were, before they were, before they ever were. And so, (laughs) as you think about God's work in creation, um, I mean, we could be here for a few weeks, but here's a couple of things that it was doing for me and I hope it does for you. So first, when he says in verse 16, in your book or in all the days of my life before one of them came to be, what this means is that, you know, whether you're in the midst of making a tough decision now or, you know, inevitably there's going to come a time not far from now probably where you have to make a decision that's going to be stressful and it's probably not going to be very clear. Most of the most important decisions we have to make aren't, aren't super black and white. And so, but when you know that God has written your entire storyline, and your storyline, if you're in Christ, will end in splendor and praise. You can exhale a bit when you make decisions. You can exhale. I mean, yes, pray a lot. Yes, seek counsel from community. Yes, make sure, you know, the decision that you're making isn't clearly sin. Do everything you can to make sure, okay, this is in God's interest, not my interest. It's for others' interest, not my own. 
but then you can make the decision and act. I mean, for some of you, a lot of you know that here I'm mainly preaching myself because, so recently we've painted a few different rooms in my house, and I take forever to make, like, even the smallest decisions, and so I'll literally spend, no, I shouldn't tell you how long I'll spend picking out a paint color. So what we have to do is go to Home Depot, and Kelsey will just, because, you know, there's so many colors, Kelsey will just grab three colors, and then, okay, you have to choose one of these three, but like, and that, that's a, that's kind of a silly example, but with any decision you make in your life, like you don't have to worry about it shipwrecking your life. You're not going to make a decision and God's up there thinking, I can't believe she did that. He's going to use even the bad decisions you make for your honor and for God's glory. So you can rest in any, any decision you're making because God's already ordained every day in your life. And number two, Think about this, how, this is, I think, something we often do without realizing it, but think of how this impacts your view of yourself. So has anybody ever told you, or have you ever told yourself, that you're ugly? Or that you'll never amount to much of anything? Or that you're less than in some way, shape, or form? And what God so eagerly wants you to see is from when you were an embryo until today, you are a personal, intimate work of God that he is deeply involved with. And so whoever may have told you something like that before is going to have to do business with God And, you know, in the church, especially in Reformed churches, I I love Reformed theology. Um, I think one of the downsides is in the church, you know, whatever theological camp you come from, is we can, some of us, uh, but a lot of us can really focus on the Genesis 3 part about the fact that we're fallen. And for some of you, you need to go back to Genesis 1. Because even more than the fact that you're fallen, although that really matters because you don't see your need for a redeemer unless you know that. Like, you are made in God's image. Which means God has created you to actually be a representation of him. In your family, in your workplace, in your friendships, in your relationships. And so, I mean, in love, can I just tell you, like, you have no business saying, I wish I had the life of somebody else. Or envying someone else. Or even if you come from a a broken upbringing, as flawed or as painful and real as that is, because God is a God who mends broken things and brings beauty out of ashes, anything that's happened to you or that you've experienced, God is using to form you into a unique individual. And because of who you are, you can actually, you can do things and impact people that only you can do because of how God has formed you. So maybe tonight you just need to hear God tell you, I'm actually, I adore you. I've been making you and involved with you since you were a little kid. Okay, so that's God's attentiveness to his creation. I mean, not just people, or not just animals and things, but you. And then he moves on, verses 17. 
to the end. Here's how we respond to all this. God knowing us, God being present with us, God, God being so attentive to us and adoring us. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So David's just, he's, his mouth is open. He's in awe. If I would count them, there are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. And so the language here, I am awake and I'm still with you, it probably has less to do with David waking up from a nap and thinking, oh God, you're still with me, although that's true. He's probably, it includes that, but he's most likely also getting at the language of death because David also wrote a psalm, Psalm 17, where he says, when I awake from death, I will be seeing your form. And this doesn't shock us as much as I think it should because so David has confidence that no matter what, any darkness, God's right hand's going to hold him fast. And even if he, even if he dies, it's going to be nothing more than a passing sleep and God's still going to be with him. And this should shock us because if you've read the story of David in First and Second Samuel, you know David's a mess and he knows he's a mess. I mean, he failed miserably as a father, as a husband, as a king. And I think if you or I had the kinds of responsibilities that David had and the kind of public failures and the intensity of the moral failures that David had, we would be cracked like an egg on the floor. And you know that if even the people who love you the most, if they were to really, if they were to really see the real you, you know, not the image that you project, but the real you, like if all, every single one of your thoughts that you have on a day-to-day basis were put up on that screen for the people closest to you to see. I mean, even the people who are most loving toward you probably, I mean, at minimum would pause before approaching you. Many would walk away. But David's saying, no, God, you know me. You see all of me, the real me, and yet no matter what happens, you're still with me. So how can David have this confidence and how can you have this confidence that God will always be with you and never reject you even though he sees all of you? And there's a few places we know this, but one of the places I think we see it the most clearly is in 2 Samuel 7 where God makes a a long covenant to David. And essentially what God tells David is, David, in your line, there's going to be a son who comes through your line who's so faithful that it covers your unfaithfulness who's so beautiful that he covers your ugliness. And even though he's perfect, he'll still be disciplined with the stripes of men. And David didn't know exactly who this would be. He just knew he could cling on to God's promises. But you and I know who God was talking about when he made this promise to David. And so the answer is you wonder, how can God really see all of me? And not only not reject me, but welcome me and constantly hold me by my right hand. It's because there's someone else who in his moment of deepest darkness and greatest distress, when he went to cling to God's right hand, it wasn't there. Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, you know, he quotes Psalm 22. And what's Psalm 22? It's many things, but... One of the things it's most about, it's it's a psalm of distance. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Oh God, be not far from me. David lost the hand of God. 
as he was plunged into darkness so that you, no matter what you're going through now, know that eventually the darkness will turn to light and he always has you by the hand. This gives you confidence. This gives you comfort. This gives you hope. And then in light of that, how does he end? Verse 19 through 22, I said we'd cover that next week, so we'll cover that next week. But remember, this is in the context of he's in great distress. So verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So what David does here is basically after he's been standing in amazement about who God is, his knowledge, his presence, his unwavering faithfulness to him, what he does is he says, he ends with saying, God, standing in awe of you, it, it's leading me to ask you and to invite you in to tell me, you know, Lord, there are unplumbed depths within me of hypocrisy and selfishness and vanity that I can't see. And so I need you to show me these things. And I know it's safe to do this with you because of who you are and your character, everything that we've been talking about. So please show me if there's any grievous or offensive way in me is another way to translate that and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so as we end this psalm, just think about, you know, what would it like each to, be, to do each morning, not only to cling to the immense comforts that we've been looking at, about God really knowing you, always being present with you, his attentive creation of you, to wake up each morning and to through the scriptures and through prayer and through other people in your life, as you stand in awe of God, just ask him to help you hate the selfishness that's in you, the self-centeredness that's in you, not because you're a horrible person, but because you desire to walk in the way of everlasting, as David says here. I mean, when you do that day after day with the God of the scriptures, I mean, would that make you a better friend, a better family member, a better coworker, and would it give you more steadiness even in the midst of any situation that you're going through or any tough decision you have to make? It absolutely would. So, so let's praise God for his mercies toward us and uh, pursue him in this way this week. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that um, we, through Jesus, can also just thank you, along with David, saying thank you so much for knowing me. Thank you for being present with me. Thank you for making me uh, from, from before I was even a microscopic individual and holding me fast, Lord. Uh, help us to be a church that has this confidence and also each day can have the humility to ask you to search us, uh, to show us the parts of us that still need to be made new, uh, still need to be made in the image of Jesus and to receive that refinement joyfully. Uh, thank you so much for who you are, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.